This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Calculine. The Calculine is a free tool you can get by simply going to calculine.com. That's C-A-L-C-U-L-I-E-N.com, calculine.com. And it's a free tool that allows you to easily calculate the 45 and 90 day deadlines for notice to owners, liens, and bond claims. No more counting on your fingers to figure out when your notice to owner deadline is or when your lien deadline is. Just go to calculine.com, put in your information, and we'll send one to you for free in the mail. You'll get it in a few days. Hello, everybody. This is Alex Barthet with The Lien Zone. Today, we're going to talk about how to avoid disputes. Usually, people come to me when they have a dispute, but we're going to talk today with Sue Dyer of Sudico, who's going to tell us how to avoid the dispute to begin with. How are you doing today, Sue? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Alex. So, Sue, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? That sounds great. So uh, I have been working in construction for about four decades now. And uh, many of the things I've done is uh, negotiating with labor unions and creating an approach which I call the partnering approach because uh, resolving disputes is not fun. It's much better to try to uh, prevent them in the first place. And so I've worked on that for about 35 years, creating models, and I call it the partnering approach. So in my book I just wrote, it talks about the partnering approach, two steps to building trust, and that is really what helps to eliminate the disputes in the first place, or if you get them, you have the ability to resolve them. And I'm going to share with you three of those ideas today on this podcast. So let's get right into it, Sue. So tell us, what is the first principle that folks can use to prevent the dispute from even beginning? Well, the first one is to always be having in mind and when you have conflict kind of emerging, uh, you feel that need to write an email that states a position, uh, start thinking about what's a fair way to resolve this. And when you meet face to face, which is what I highly recommend, that the first thing you put on the table is what's a fair way to resolve this and also agree that you're going to work towards creating what is a fair and justifiable resolution to this issue that you have. And the issue could be one that's rolling right now in a project where you have a timeline, you need to get a resolution, or you could be at the end of your project and you've got some unresolved issues. It works either way, but you want to put fairness on the table and work towards what's a fair, justifiable resolution. But isn't isn't fair in the eye of the person that's telling you what they think is fair? Well, of course it is from their perspective. The magic is, is that if you tell me what you think is fair and I tell you what I think is fair, then we can have a very meaningful conversation about the gap between that. And I understand where you're coming from and you understand where I'm coming from. And we're actually having a dialogue. What happens in construction almost always is that everyone states their position and they just talk at each other. 
They never really talk to each other so that you can co-create a solution that works and that people feel is fair. And the other magic thing about when you can create a solution that is fair, it is very durable. People absolutely fall, follow through and they feel as though, okay, it may not be wholly what I wanted, but I feel like, you know, this, this is okay. It feels fair. And when you can do that, particularly on a project that is ongoing, then you know that you have a history of resolving issues that are fair. And with that, you can begin to resolve any issue. And really, I've learned it doesn't matter the size. I have teams that can't agree on the data, have a meeting. And I have other teams that have huge issues, many, many multi-million dollar issues. And they have created a history of resolution of fair uh, ways of resolving their issues together and they can resolve any issue. It doesn't matter the size, the scope. It matters that you create a history of resolution and that the parties feel as though it's fair and justifiable. And so how do you how do you get a meeting with someone that doesn't want to meet with you? Right? Because well, I agree with you getting getting the meeting, having an in-person meeting is always more effective. But sometimes it's hard to even get that meeting. Well, that kind of leads to my second uh, principle, which is people don't argue with what they help to create. So you have to create a forum where people can come together in a safe place, a safe manner. That's why we use the partnering approach with a, a professional neutral who can bring the parties together and create a psychological safety by setting ground rules and helping the parties move forward to share their stories, share their perspectives. That's what I find happens doesn't happen a lot of times. It's just weirdly that we think that, especially by the time you're you really got it, it's a dispute. You're wrapped around the axle quite a bit and you you're kind of entrenched in your own position and maybe you've written a lot of emails, you've done research, you spent a lot of time and energy and resources and proving your position. And that talking at each other means that you just don't even know what the other people's perspective really is. You know their per position, but you don't know their perspective. And so, for example, I'm sitting here in Livermore and I'm looking at my screen and I can look out the window and I see what I see. And you sitting in South Florida, you can look at your screen and you look out your window and you see what you see. But what we see are not the same. But until we explain to each other that we have a different perspective, if you were a, a, a drone above my office, you would have a different perspective. If you were you know, across the street or across town, you have a different perspective. So it's really creating a forum where you can honor and listen to each other's perspectives. And then you really can begin to understand really the issue more fully. And you also understand where people are looking at it and how they're looking at it. I can't tell you how many hundreds of times I've had people make assumptions that were just wholly untrue. And so in this forum, we allow people to share their full story 
and we allow the other side to ask questions, no judgments, ask questions so that we understand. So it's a forum to try to really understand. And then the other side gets to share their perspective and their story. And amazing things happen when you do that, because I'll have I'll have teams that are, you know, maybe there's a claim and uh, they're telling their stories. And after they both told their stories, they'll, they'll man like a whiteboard and they'll say, well, wait a minute, it actually happened like this. And then this happened and they're together creating the story. And then when they do that, they begin to say, okay, well, given these circumstances, what would be a fair way to resolve this? And I have never, knock on wood, had a team that couldn't figure out what was fair once they have listened to each other fully in their full story of what. I, assu- I assume that a key component of this is having all the right people in the room. No- nothing that. could be worse than dealing you with that. someone that only has so much authority. And then you hit that level of authority in whatever situation it may apply to. And, and they're like, well, I have to go talk to my boss who hasn't participated for the last three hours. And now you got to start over, right? Absolutely. I think there's, I always tell everybody the success of any meeting, but particularly a dispute resolution meeting is making sure you got right, the right people in the room for the issues you're going to talk about. So if you have a subcontractor, you have a vendor, you need them in the room when you're talking about that issue. And then the other thing is there needs to be prep. And so that's why then what the neutral does is that in preparation, they will work with the parties to anoint who is the decision maker who has the authority to make a decision on this issue. It isn't the facilitator who's going to make the decision. It will be the two or three, depending on how many parties you have, uh, decision makers that will make the decision. So really the whole process is geared around a forum to allow the decision makers to create a decision that is fair based on what they've heard. How often do you separate the parties versus keep them all together in the in the main room? You know, in, in, the le- in legal proceedings, we have mediations which sounds similar to this process, but, you know, it's important to be able to huddle up separate and apart from the other side. Yeah. So I do put that in the ground rules that we can caucus, but the facilitator calls the caucus parties don't. And I almost never do it because what I want is for everyone to hear everyone. I want them to be able to work towards creating a fair, justifiable resolution together And so if we have to caucus, to me, it's like it's not going to be as powerful for the team or for the parties or for the durability of the agreement. So I try not to do that. But occasionally you might have to do that, particularly if you have uh, some entrenched people at the lower levels. My caucuses most of the time are with the decision makers from the parties. Uh, It's not one side versus the other. So what's your last point? What's the, we talked about the first two. What's the third principle? So the last one is I have grown to believe that there absolutely is a collective wisdom in a group or a team. And uh, I've learned to absolutely trust this, whether it's from when I was running construction trade associations 
that my board of directors could create this wisdom that would take us where we needed to do or do the things we needed to do or keep us out of trouble. Or if it's a project team, they there is a wisdom that can be tapped into. But if you don't have a high trust working relationship, you never get to really tap into that. So when you have um, an issue or it's grown into a conflict or a dispute, it's really important to work on building that high trust atmosphere, which is why the fairness and the forum for people co-creating the solutions uh, really helps to foster the ability to get magnificent resolutions, things that people would never have thought were possible. Uh, and if all, a lot of times people walk away and say, I never thought that was, I just laugh sometimes now when I go in to help people resolve issues now, I just sort of chuckle. I think this is going to be fun because they think there's no way we can ever resolve this. It's not going to be resolved. We've been entrenched for three years or five years. And I, I just, I just sort of think this is going to be fun because they're going to see that they can absolutely resolve these and they can resolve it in a fair, justifiable manner or in maybe a very elegant way. And so I just find it a lot of fun. So if, you know, you have a dispute and let's assume that dispute deals with money, um, you know, payment of a change order, approval of, you know, extended general conditions. Um, how often do you find that where it dovetails into legal matters that lawyers should or shouldn't be involved. I'm going to guess that you think the lawyers shouldn't be involved. You probably find that they are an impediment to the resolution most of the time. No, I really think that they, if you create a dispute system, there's a place in the system, absolutely, for the lawyers. Absolutely. But before you get there, you want to do the more informal party-based resolution. Uh, so that you try to get see if the parties can resolve it. And even if you have, like, what I do is I have people make a list of all their issues and I make them break them into sub-issues. So I've, I'll walk in often and there's 53 different issues. And we just work towards toward one at a time resolving them. Now, truthfully, I've never had them not resolve them. But if you didn't, there might be some that could be, well, we need this one to go to legal. And I, that, I could see that happening like um, if you're a city or a private entity or you have a board of directors and you need to have some third party give you legal standing or legal advice or an arbitration ruling or something uh, in order to feel like they'll, they'll open their pocketbook and pay I could see that as something you might need to do, but it wouldn't be on all the issues. It'd probably be down, down at the bottom when you get into the time and the dollars, the overhead, extended overhead, all that kind of stuff. I see right. that possibly could be, but the actual issues themselves, I don't, I don't see why the team couldn't resolve them. So, um, so you've given us these three principles. I, I think they're helpful. Is there, kind of an overarching um, philosophy or takeaway uh, that you've seen uh, about the types of teams or the types of people that are more likely to resolve disputes versus those that aren't? 
You know, I, I can't say that I have. I, I think sometimes the people that are the most, um, you know, I would call traditionally construction, take no prisoners kind of folks, uh, they're very pragmatic. And when they realize that uh, there is a, a method, a process, a path forward to resolution, uh, they learn and they and they they make it work. And uh, uh, I'm sure there's some people who would just be entrenched and want their day in court. I, we also I also have a nonprofit that does same day mediation in court. And uh, we often teach the mediators that whatever the issues are uh, may not really be the issues. It's that somehow it's gotten personal. Sure. And you've got to work to resolve that personal component before you can actually resolve the underlying real issue. So, as you, as you can imagine, Sue, we see that a lot. Yes, I can imagine that. Yes, yes, um, and and it's true. Some people just want to have their day in court. However, most people in construction are fairly pragmatic, and if there's a method for getting a resolution and getting it settled and getting money uh, up faster than they're going to do that. Uh, and for this approach, if you are in the middle of a project, like, you know, I, I can just have hundreds of examples, but the one that comes to mind is was for a port and they were doing, you know, work on a seawall and there was all sorts of unforeseen things in the water. Yeah, of course. And the, the city actually started a lawsuit when they were not even 10% complete. So now you have this war going on while you're trying to build something. Well, that's only going to be a lose-lose for everybody. So trying to, during a project, this process is very important so that you can resolve issues as they come up and you don't lose the momentum that is really required for the project to succeed on time and on budget. And for where I have really implemented the full partnering programs uh, with uh, owners that have like $10 million a year of projects or 10 billion, I mean. Um, So there's just literally thousands of projects every year. Uh, We've seen savings of around 10% uh, of total costs per year. And uh, I've done enough programs now, that's pretty much what we've seen. And the savings come from uh, time savings, and it also comes from cost savings. And then if you're in low bid situation, we see the bids come down pretty substantially because everybody knows that the owner is one that they trust. And so they don't put extra money in. We have another client that they're working on a very robust partnering program because we did research and they're paying a premium of 50% per project because they're so difficult to work with. Yeah, we see that down here. There's some public agencies um, that are very difficult to work with and, and, uh, and they're, they're not getting a good bid spread on their projects because people don't want to work with them and exactly. people are marking up the fact that, well, if I have to work with them, you know, I'm going to charge more. And, you know, there's, there's not seven bidders, there's two. So I don't have to be as competitive. Exactly. Um, and in this day and age where there's so much work coming out and fewer and fewer contractors, that's not the place for an owner to be. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I see as the, 
type of person that is less likely to resolve a dispute um, is usually someone that hasn't been through it before. I, I find that they perceive incorrectly that the legal system is fast, efficient, and fair. Um, and the folks that we represent that resolve disputes with our advice quickly are the ones that have been there, done that, and realized that it's um, always better to have a deal that you can just barely swallow, but just put it behind you so that you can get back to your core business than it is to have a, a, a lawsuit. Do you see the same thing? Absolutely. No doubt about it. And I also think that even with the processes that we're using, people aren't doing this in a vacuum. They're talking to their good construction lawyers, because one of the things I love about construction lawyers, as opposed to some other practices, is that they really do see their role, the ones that I deal with, as being advisors. And uh, they're not, you know, you know, they're not trying to chase work, they have more work than they can do. So, uh, you know, they're trying to advise their clients and give them the best advice they can to resolve the issues. And I also think that it's important because uh, there's so much new case law that kind of comes out through particular cases that uh, it's important for people to get that advice too. Um, there's not too many things that are new, but there's some new technologies and things like that. You just got to keep up on it. Uh, so I think you always want to get good advice. Uh, and yes. then uh, if you can get the parties to actually resolve, and especially if it's during the project, a amen to that. Uh, we find the same thing even with private owners is that they think they're very different, but actually the process and the issues they have are similar. And we're also seeing a lot more... Uh, desire to create a high trust environment uh, on private projects because they're always embedded in the public in some manner. <laughs> you know, there's the permitting agencies or maybe there's some funding issues. There's just, it seems to be there's like public folks involved. So we're, we're seeing more of that too. Um, well, Sue, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your um decades of experience with us. If folks wanted to reach out to you to learn more about what you do or ask any questions, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm on uh, LinkedIn at uh, Sue Dyer, and you can find me with Sudico. I'm also on uh, Instagram at Sue F. Dyer. Uh, and uh, you can find it on our website. Uh, you can always contact me through the contact. It's a sudico, S-U-D-Y-C-O dot com slash contact. And I also have a free gift for everyone. Uh, I wrote a book that became uh, number two on Wall Street Journal this year and number one on Amazon and on the uh, USA Today bestsellers list. And in that, I created an assessment for your leadership style, trusted leadership style. And so I'd like to offer that as a free gift to all of your listeners. They can go ahead and check out uh, where are you along the trusted leader continuum as a leader? What kind of trust are you bringing to your projects and to your business? Fantastic. We will share all of that in the show notes, as well as all of your contact information. Um, so again, Sue, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank and you so much, Alex. I appreciate all that you do.
No problem. And uh, everybody, we'll catch you on the next podcast. Have a great day.